episode 11 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we welcome Tim Buno. Tim's a diehard archery hunter originally from upstate New York who now calls Montana home. He also happens to be my elk hunting partner and an all-around great dude. In this episode, Tim and I recap our lessons learned from our first two seasons hunting in the West as transplants from the Midwest and the East. We discuss our preconceptions of what we thought hunting in the West would be like and what it has actually turned out to be like. We cover lessons learned on whitetail, mule deer, antelope, and elk. We also discuss how our gear has evolved, what we now throw in our packs, and gear we wouldn't want to live without. For anyone planning your first Western hunt, you won't want to miss this episode. Speaking of planning Western hunts, guys, I have a new article on my blog with a downloadable Excel file that contains a checklist with about every item a guy can imagine he might need to plan an out-of-state hunting trip. The checklist utilizes a checkbox feature to let me know if I've packed an item or not. Once packed, there's a separate column where I can select if an item is a pack item, this is for items that I carry in my backpack, or a base camp item for items that will remain in my vehicle, cabin, or other lodging site. The checklist has formulas built in to automatically total the weight for my pack items separate from my base camp items. There's also a formula for total gear weight. This is an incredibly useful feature when trying to be mindful of gear weight on backpack hunts. The checklist also contains hyperlinks to some of my favorite pieces of gear. I'll put a link to the article in the description of this podcast, and all I'd ask for in return is that you subscribe to the YouTube channel or join my mailing list at www.goingforbrokeoutdoors.com. Before we get into today's podcast, I want to let you guys know about an incredible opportunity. Lou over at Stealth Outdoors is giving away one of Dan Infault's new Beast Gear Tree Stands. The giveaway is currently running. All you need to do to enter is make a purchase from Stealth Outdoors anytime before August 17th, 2021, and you'll be entered for a chance to win a Hunting Beast gear stand. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear and a chance to win a beast stand. If you'd like more details about the contest, you can visit Stealth Outdoors Facebook page for more details. Today's podcast is brought to you by Backwoods Mobile Hunting Gear at www backwoodsmobilegear.com. Backwoods Mobile Gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup. Backwoods Mobile Gear's product line includes climbing aiders like their multi-step aider and versa aider. Climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with the climbing aider at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick. Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of Amsteel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to Amsteel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt-ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight Amsteel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Again, check out Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and keep your gear tighter. For those of you who plant food plots, the window to get your fall plantings in is rapidly closing. Head on over to Ideal Northern Edge Food Plot Mixes at www.idealnorthernedge.com. Ideal Northern Edge has carefully created a variety of seed mixes and mineral blends to cover all of your food plot planting needs. Unique to Ideal Northern Edge is a bright color coating on the seeds that provides a visual contrast against tilled soil and helps you ensure optimal seed distribution and coverage for your next food plot planting. Visit www.idealnorthernedge.com for more information and to place your order. Now, on to the podcast. All right. This is a first, got an in-studio guest today. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Tim Buno. Tim is a fellow Montana transplant by way of upstate New York. I first learned about Tim via Dan Infaults, the Hunting Beast Forum, where 
He was a regular contributor. By chance, Tim and I both moved to Montana around the same time in early 2019. We become friends and elk hunting partners, although Tim's more of the brains of the operation. He drags me along. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss our lessons learned over the past two seasons hunting a variety of species, including whitetail, mule deer, elk, and antelope. So, Tim, first off, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, a little, little different here. We're learning the equipment, and first time, like I said, I've had someone in the same room as opposed to on the phone. But I want to kick off this uh, podcast with a story about your near-fatal mistake when you decided to venture out of New York and head west for hunting. You had a bit of an unconventional choice. Why don't you tell everyone what state you were considering? Gosh. So when I first made the decision to to leave New York, I kind of really more of a whitetail frame of mind right then and there. So I started looking around at how I can hunt the premier states for whitetail. And uh, that was Nebraska. That was an interesting choice. Yeah, I mean, just because you're in the corner right there. Um, yeah, I forget what actually area it was, but... You're probably looking at Omaha, which is like eastern Nebraska, butts up to western Iowa. Yep, yep, it, that's what it was. It was Omaha, so I was looking at going in there, because then you have all those whitetail states right there, so... That was my first thought. So uh, being a contributor on the Beast Forum there, uh, I put a post up, you know, hey, I think I'm going to you know, move here. And, and that's when you came along uh, and said, uh, idiot, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you move to Montana? And, uh, yeah, it made me uh, kind of sit back and think a little bit. There was a time in my life where I wanted to go to Montana, mainly because of uh, a river runs through it, you know, fly fishing. But, yeah, I, I listened to you. That's good. So at that point... Uh, even prior to moving, you'd never been to Montana at all, had you? No, never. It's a big leap of faith on your part. Yeah, yeah, especially because I planned on leaving in January. So um, towing a, a car behind a U-Haul with a dog, two snowstorms on my way out. So, yeah, it was almost like uh, they didn't want me to come here. Yeah. <laughs> so two years in, any regrets now? Yeah, I didn't do it sooner. Yeah, same, same here. So prior to moving to Montana, you had been to Colorado on one elk hunt. So you had a little exposure to Western hunting, but I'd like to know what your expectations were coming from upstate New York to Montana. I really didn't have any expectations um, other than from stuff I've seen and, you know, obviously videos and podcasts and from a little bit of what you described, because, you know, we've, you know, we've had conversations prior to this. So uh, I didn't really know what to expect i kind of expected less and uh yeah i'm completely blown away you know with the state itself i don't know what your first experience was like when you first entered montana but i actually lived in montana briefly in 2012 and i specifically remember coming in and i was in the daylight i got through the badlands in western north dakota and then i got into montana and instantly i started seeing deer and antelope just about everywhere did you come in at night, or did you have the same kind of experience? Same thing, actually. I, I wanted to come in uh, so I could see. I was actually, I think I got to Dickinson, and I pulled over and slept, basically, because I wanted to see what, you know, Montana looked like. I wanted to see that, uh, the Welcome to Montana sign. And, uh, yeah, exactly what you said. Just getting past the Badland, Badlands, just getting into that eastern part of Montana, all of a sudden it was like antelope, mule deer, you know, then you hit the river, and it's like 
whitetail, the car swerving on the back, you know, like get it, get, get it together, man, get it together. For sure. And when I moved in 2012, it was kind of the same situation. I'd never been to Montana ever. I'd heard about it, read about it, and just kind of took a leap of faith and moved out. And I mean, it wasn't long after just getting into the, into the state, but not long after I started my job, I was like, oh yeah, I made the right decision. I felt like I was home. That right there too. Uh, it feels like you belong. I, I guess it, I, maybe that's just the sportsman aspect of it just because it's endless, but yeah, it just feels like home. So today's podcast, we've picked up quite a bit of knowledge over the last two years. We were both uh, admittedly very green coming into Western hunting. Tim had been on his Colorado elk hunt and I had hunted Montana in 2017 as a non-resident. I did an elk hunt in September and a mule deer hunt in November, but I was hunting with friends that were locals and we hunted public land, but they knew the areas pretty well. So I was basically on a guided hunt. So we were, we were real green, but over the last two years, I think we've learned quite a bit, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So one of the things I think we both changed our views on is learning new areas. Talk to me about your perceptions prior to coming to Montana, about what you needed to do versus what we do now. Like, what did you think was going to happen as far as the hunting and packing your gear in and stuff versus what the reality has turned into for us? And then uh, go ahead, and you can start on elk. Yeah, for elk. I kind of had the whole entire perception of uh, the same thing I took going to Colorado, getting back off the trailhead as far as possible, you know, just trying to, out, you know, walk people, I guess you'd say, or, you know, then you got the competition between guides and, you know, anybody on horseback and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the first, you know, perception of it, you know, was narrowing down air areas, you know, where you can get away from there. And, of course, you know, being here in the wintertime, there's a lot of, uh, you know, build up and a lot of e-scouting. That took place and everything that I looked at was definitely, you know, anything high peaks, you know, north face and slopes, the your, your usual stuff that you want to look forward to. Over the two years, um, we've both discovered that not all elk are high country elk. Most of them, uh, well, I shouldn't say most of them, but they're uh, a highly adaptable animal. So they're, they're kind of spread out all over the place. And when we talk about what's probably our bread and butter the the animal we're most familiar with because you've done a fair amount of whitetail hunting that inferior <laughs> species <laughs> and that's an inside joke me and tim have i ask him why he doesn't hunt mule deer out here he can shoot whitetails anywhere but anyways i still love hunting whitetails too but talk about uh what your experience has been like or what you expected coming from new york and then what what's actually happened since you've been here the expectations on a whitetail um go at it just like normal in the east Watch your uh, your access and your en- your exit, scout, 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 and what I've learned is, I think you still got to scout, but you don't have to be as intrusive. Your glassing opportunity out here is just is phenomenal, especially river bottom areas. You can see for miles, so you know you don't even have to really you know get off the road too far to uh, you know to see some of these bottoms. Just getting a high vantage point alone. You can figure, you know, you can figure stuff out, see what's down in there, see if it's worth it, and then, you know, dive in. I think something that we've talked about a lot is because there's so much opportunity in the state, especially in September, most people are out hunting elk if they're serious bow hunters. Some people get sheep tags or goat tags, so they're off chasing that. Then there's uh, a lot of mule deer hunters as well. So whitetails are, are farther down the totem pole than they are in most of the east or the midwest. So for the archery hunting, I think you'd agree, I found the pressure to be 
low to non-existent for whitetail hunting early season. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that we are probably the closest to seeing what a whitetail acts like in unpressured areas. Yeah, I would agree 100%. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. When you're driving down the road at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and there's deer on their feet feeding in the wide open, you know, coming back from New York, you know, those, those things are in bed by or in the timber a half hour before sunup. Yeah, I know on several occasions I've seen pretty good bucks bedded out in the middle of alfalfa in the afternoon. <laughs> like you said, that that never happened in Michigan. And then moving on to antelope. So obviously neither one of us had ever hunted antelope. You coming from New York, myself coming from Michigan. And you drew a tag the first year. Or actually you bought an over-the-counter tag, right? Like a surplus tag? Yeah, yeah. Actually the first year, um, there was like a, shoot. I like, think it was like 500 yeah, tags like left 500 there. tags left over for the 900. This is a sore subject for me because uh, <laughs> Tim got one in my my FWP, which is Fish, oh, Wildlife, and right. Parks account. It, it said I purchased one, and then it never awarded me one, and I called them, and they they could care less. But I got so, I got the last one. Yeah, <laughs> Tim must have got the last one. But you you learned a lot that first year, I think. And I didn't. I don't know. I don't think I tagged along any of the antelope hunts the first year. Um, no, you didn't. Um, I forgot what you had going on. I think you were. You might have been all about mule deer right then and there. Yeah, I don't know what was frame. what was going on, but I I didn't make it out that or Sean was making me go hiking. Probably is more likely. Yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah. You guys are probably in Yellowstone. But talk about the first year. I mean, because you're green, right? You've read some stuff online. We both have, but I don't know what was your experience like, and what did you learn that first year? What were the big takeaways from that first year antelope archery hunting? Yeah, I mean, like, besides, uh, you know, what you can read about, you know, spot and stalk, I'm a big spot and stalk person. Sitting in a blind just doesn't, didn't appease me, you know, that's another thing, another reason why I want to move out here, because of the spot and stalk opportunity, you know, you can spot and stalk almost every, any animal here, the train allows it, but uh, antelope, didn't know nothing about them, uh, I think, you know, I think you and I both agree that every single antelope looked the same, Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's hard to judge them. Yeah, so... That, I mean, that definitely wasn't even, you know, on the radar, but, you know, just trying to figure them out. I think my biggest help was actually uh, uh, Andy May. Uh, I talked to him a few times about it, and, you know, he gave me some pointers. And after, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so uh, failed attempts, um, I, things started clicking together. They'll let you get in 100 yards, you know, especially the non-pressure that, that first, you know, ar- archery season those first two weeks, they'll let you get within a hundred yards. But after that, you know, they're, they're, they're all on you. That first year started getting closer. Um, the first areas I started picking out, they just weren't, they didn't have the train skip ahead. Yet. That's the biggest learning, uh, you know, thing, thing I learned about is you need the train. Yeah. And I think what Tim's saying specifically is you see a lot of antelope out here. They're a prairie creature, and you see a lot of them on, like, table flat, sage flats. And with a bow, there's just no way you can make that happen. So we started, uh, Tim did, and then last year we, we picked up where Tim left off after the first year, but started really keying on, on areas that had some rolling hills and terrain where you could work a draw behind the herd, move up closer to them, and that seemed to make a huge difference for, for opportunities. Yeah, that, that helped out a lot. You know, that, that first year, I did get a shot off. I did get within 20 yards of a buck. Yeah, what happened there? Oh, jeez. I boogeymaned him. 
Uh, yeah, I, I came up on the backside of a knoll. I glassed him for like a mile away. He had, you know, a handful of does with him. Um, it was a sharp little knoll. I got up on the backside of it. I kind of just laid down and crawled up and I could see the does. I knew he was still there. So I, I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of like laid on my back, drew and kind of spun around, got on my knees and it was instant. As soon as his eyes, as soon as I popped that knoll, his eyes, well, obviously they, they can see like right behind him almost. But, uh, yeah, he, he turned around, spawned, looked at me, and gone. Yeah, he had another adventure, too, that first year, right? Talk about your first uh, hands and knees rattlesnake encounter. So I ran into one rattlesnake the first, uh, it might have been the second weekend out. Uh, I actually walked out to a point, glassed. I turned around, I took one step, and one cold right up. And he was literally right next to my boot track in the uh, the dirt. So that was kind of nerve-wracking, especially... The worst part is the walk back to the sage. You're on edge yeah. and everything looks like a snake. So, and then about, I think it was the following weekend, I was crawling, I was spotting, stalking an antelope. I was crawling up on him. And uh, yeah, I just happened to look, you know, I'm on my hands and knees. I looked in the sage brush in front of me. And as soon as I saw it, it, you know, it got alarmed and that thing just called right up. I've never jumped to my feet so quick you know like it was immediately up up on my feet and just turned around and just walked out the stock was done i was done for the day i had i think it was almost you know half a mile walk back through the sage flats and then that was nerve-wracking the whole entire way back through but yeah i had a you know two encounters of rattlesnakes that year and the one that was within three four feet of my face yeah that's real scary so the big takeaways for antelope are rolling terrain if you're going to spot and stalk. Definitely. And if you're calling on your hands and knees, put your bow out in front of you, right? <laughs> put your yeah. bow out first. The, the other thing would be a, a, a local that has befriended me calls it a coyoting them. So your terrain, you definitely have to use your terrain, but don't lock yourself into, don't make a move on them, and that's not going to allow you to uh, double back and make a second move. You know, try to try to leave a couple options open. Because, you know, they, they have no rhyme to reason on what they're doing pretty much. So that's what one thing I was doing is I was just kind of like, okay, you're going over here, so I'd go. And then I'd be, you know, locked down. I couldn't go anywhere. And then I started, you know, using the train a little bit more, staying more patient instead of trying to go right in for the kill, you know, following them a little bit more, waiting for them to get into a position that I could, you know, close that final distance on it. And that, that was, that's been the biggest part. I think that's where you and I got, um, you know, we kind of got ourselves into yeah, last year I think, uh, again, I didn't hunt with Tim the first year, but last year I filmed Tim, the videos actually on the YouTube channel, and Tim shot a real nice buck last year. But one of the things I learned just filming Tim and watching him was how he was using the terrain and being real patient because the, well, actually it was the, the first buck that's in the video. We, we spotted that buck, or Tim spotted I don't remember who spotted Somebody spotted the buck, and it was a good hour and a half two hours we we used the train worked around took our time the antelope ended up bedding down and then we, we moved in real slow and tim got a shot off there and then kind of uh <laughs> that, that didn't go so well but that's all right it's uh we'll blame that one on uh, whatever brand range finder you were using at the time bushnell yeah so so bushnell gave him some erratic readings and uh that didn't end well but it was a good experience and then the the buck that tim actually ended up killing well, why don't you go ahead and, and tell the story and, and the patience and the train in there and that story? 
Yeah, so Jeremy and I, we decided to go try a new spot. We started, you know, the, the terrain features. Um, we started looking for more specific ones. Uh, yeah, we got to this little area, and uh, it actually looked pretty bleak at first. We didn't see anything. Um, and uh, I think we moved one coolie over, and then we finally spotted him. And shoot, what was he, like 800 yards? It was a long ways. So we kind of like sat back for a couple of minutes and looked at the topography, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what to do. And I mean, we couldn't have been there for more than what, five, five, 10 minutes before we decided to make a, you know, to try to get a little bit closer, go in one specific direction. Yep. Close the distance. So we closed the distance where we disappeared. And then when we popped up to where he should have been, he wasn't there. <laughs> and uh, the terrain worked out great, but. He, uh, so we're kind of like, oh, you know, he must've gone off the other way. And then like, what was it? Just seconds later, all of a sudden, Jeremy's like, there he is, there he is. When we originally spotted that, like Tim said, the antelope, he was probably 800 yards away. And it was funny because that morning Tim was telling me he had hunted the, the year prior. And this was like maybe the second time I'd been out with him. He was telling me about how they were kind of random compared to a deer. They would just mill around in an area, but when they decided to move, they'd cover a big distance. And we had seen this buck, and he was just kind of milling around, so we were trying to close to the next good ridge, which was about 300 yards away. And we're not even, I don't even think we were halfway there. No. Or maybe close. Maybe we had went 200 yards, and this buck was 800 yards away, and I look over, <laughs> and the buck's 70 yards <laughs> away. So he'd went 600 yards in the same time it took us to go 200 and, and surprised us. Yeah, you know, he surprised us. Uh, tried to make a move on him. Uh, didn't get super aggressive with him because he he was actually working into terrain that uh, was even more you know in our favor. So yeah, we uh, we doubled back around to try to get you know one keep the wind in our favor too uh, to try to get into a better position. Uh, we had just crossed a deep creek, basically uh, a washout kind of a deal right, and dry uh, creek bed. And uh, I knew that if we can get back to that, then that basically went the whole entire width of the public land. So if we can get that to that before he, you know, got close and we get eyes on him, then we could get down in there. We could, you know, close the distance, you know, try to cut him off super quick. And that's basically what happened. And then talk about the decoy and how you had that set up. Because I think without a decoy there, that would have been real sketchy. It was sketchy even with the decoy. Right. Um, yeah, so I used the, uh, stalker decoy and, um, I put it around my camera and, uh, mounted it around the tripod. So, uh, that is one thing that uh, I did find with that stalker decoy is if it's really windy, that thing's like a sail, but using it on a tripod, obviously it's not attached to your bow, but you can still hide behind it. And, uh, yeah, so that got his attention and it kept him calm for a couple of minutes, you know, enough to, uh, to get a trustworthy uh, range on them. I think you had upgraded range finders at that point too, right? Yeah, after that one miss, I uh, I think I had a new range finder that following evening. Yeah, and, and real quick, for people that aren't familiar with uh, Stalker Decoy, uh, they're made by Ultimate Predator Gear. You can look them up. It's basically a canvas silhouette, but instead of staking them into the ground, you can mount them to your bow, or Tim had his mounted to a tripod. Then they have a little window cut out in the body, so if it's mounted to your bow, you can see your sight pins, and obviously it's a shoot-through window for your arrow. So that's uh, the stalker decoy, and what Tim said, when it's mounted on your bow, if it's windy, and it's windy in Montana quite <laughs> often, it can make the shooting a lot tougher because, like you said, it's like having a sail on your bow. Yeah, that's for sure. 
the decoy, uh, you know, kept him calm enough, kept his interest, and uh, allowed me to get a good range on him. And uh, unfortunately, like, I think between the camera, uh, being in there, and my movement, I kind of got into the feeling that he wasn't all about it and he was going to try to circle. You know, it made him move a little bit more, but, uh, you know, made the shot, and well, he went 15 yards. And it's yeah, four, maybe. Yeah, 45-yard shot, he went 15 yards, and, yeah, we had a uh, – we both got to put our hands on a, an antelope. Yep, first one that I'd yep. seen. So that was pretty awesome. Yep. Well, let's uh, move Your on. Turn now. Yeah, we're going to move on to mule deer. So uh, this is the superior species for no. anybody that's wondering. Goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, anyways, <laughs> mule deer. So what have I learned about mule deer in the last two years? The I learned a little bit in 2017. Like I said, that was I hunted with friends. We hunted public land. But that was essentially a, a guided hunt where those guys were pointing me in areas that they knew historically had deer. And my first observation was there's absolutely no way there's deer out here because the area that we hunted had very little timber to the point that I thought these guys were playing a joke on me. And I just didn't know any better. I didn't know much about mule deer. So if you're doing your e-scouting or your onyx map, don't necessarily rule an area out if it doesn't have a lot of timber. What it does need if it doesn't have a lot of timber, though, is terrain. So you need coolies, washes, cuts, and the bigger systems seem to be better from what I've experienced. It seems like uh, like the steeper coolies, you know, anything that might be, you know, that north face uh, to give them, you know, you know, some shade, but that steeper stuff, and you know, that's some uh, something I haven't you know dove into yet, but something that you definitely uh, have way more experience with than I do. Like I said, the the bigger drainage systems seem to be better for deer numbers and, and the size of deer. And obviously, just like hunting anything else, a lot of people out here seem to, not a lot of people, I don't want to stereotype too bad. There's a fair amount of road hunters, though, because you can actually shoot a pretty nice buck out here during rifle season, driving around, and then spot a mule deer, and it's legal to just get out of the truck and shoot one. So, <laughs> so a lot nice. of people a lot of people do that, but I like to hike and I like to hunt deeper and when you get a mile off the road or more into some of those bigger drainages, that's really when you start seeing the good deer numbers and generally the bigger, better bucks. Especially after you already shot a buck and you're back in your vehicle? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so good story. I don't think I've told the story on the, pack, on the podcast. You haven't. Okay, so last year, it was Labor Day weekend, and I went to hunt an area that I'd hunted the previous year. So the first year, 2019, that we were out here, I shot a small two-year-old mule deer buck with my bow, and people are probably thinking, like, why'd you shoot a small buck with your bow? In, in September, too, or maybe it was October. So it was, like, the first week of October. But I'd never shot a mule deer with my bow, and I was just having a super fun hunt, and it came in at eight yards. I shot it off the ground, no blind or anything. So it was just a cool experience. Couldn't pass it up. So last year, um, I went back to that same area because I had actually seen a really big deer in there, which is kind of makes it even funnier that I ended up shooting a small one, but I didn't care. I was having a good time. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Yeah. So I, I went back to see if this deer had made it because unlike Michigan, Montana, the deer actually survive <laughs> a season sometimes. So I went back to that area this year, and the first time I was over there, I ended up spotting this really nice buck. Well, actually, before that, I'd seen a few uh, white tails because there's white tails and mule deer in this area, like there is in a lot of Montana. So... I end up spotting this really big mule deer. I see it in the binos. It's like 200 yards away. And I have probably an hour of daylight. I was just starting to work back to the truck. I was about three miles out. So I was like, well, I'll work back. And 
it was only the first day of my my long weekend. I had like three or four days to hunt. I ended up moving in to a sagebrush, and I was about 90 yards away from the deer. And there was like a dry creek bed that was just grass, no terrain between me and him. And he was on the other side of it. And I I basically just sat there and glassed him, and I was hoping he'd come my way. I had a great wind, no other deer around. And then after about five minutes, he got super spooky and ran off. I thought, that's super weird. Maybe saw a coyote or something. And I was on public land, so I looked behind me, and this property's got like a hillside that runs through it. And there was a guy skylined on the hillside walking through it. <laughs> Prime time, so I can't blame him. Public land, that happens. But anyways, this this big mule deer runs off. And I actually called Ryan Anderson, who's a friend of ours, locked down from the hunting beast. Ryan's been on the podcast twice now. And I said, Ryan, he's hunted in South Dakota. What, what should I know about mule deer in September? And he told me to wait it out. A lot of times whitetails are bedded early. He said mule deer will come back to bed late or they'll bed early, and then they'll get up and bed a second time. So, okay. I go back to the same area the following morning, and I'm getting a little discouraged because it's 8.39, and they'd been getting light out at like 6.30 because it was early season. And then I hear a buck grunt, and I thought, wow, that's super <laughs> weird. September, buck grunt. I've, I've One, I haven't hunted September a lot, but usually don't hear grunting that early. So I look over, and it's the same mule deer from the day before. I can't believe it. And he ends up coming my way, beds down at 75 yards. And he was in a little patch of uh, smaller cottonwoods, like 12-inch diameter cottonwoods. There was eight or nine of them. And there was no wind that morning. So I just had to wait him out. And about an hour later, the wind started blowing. I crept into 55 yards, and there was just no more cover. It was just grass. So I creep into 55 yards, and I have one tree, so I'm behind this tree. I range the deer about 100 times, and it's 55 yards. An hour later, he stands up, and I think he starts walking on a diagonal kind of away from me. And then I ran into the Tim problem. He got in tall grass, like mid-chest, and I was ranging him, and I kept getting all these erratic readings, like 10, 15 yards apart. And, and he was about 55 when he was bedded. But then I was getting readings like 71, 51, 63, and I thought he'd moved away, so I ended up shooting it for 60 yards. And I basically haircut him, and it turned out when I went to where he was standing and ranged the tree I shot from, he was still exactly 55. So shot a little high. That was a bummer. The good part of the story, though, and I think this is where you're going. This is where I was going to get at. So the following weekend, I go to, over to the same area to try to shoot this deer again and ended up seeing a, a whitetail that I couldn't quite pass. I shoot this white tail and it was a nice five by five, like a 120, no monster, but good solid buck. And I was happy with it. And I get the deer quartered up because I shot it in the evening, loaded in my truck and I'm driving out of this property because it's got like an access road through it. And the same deer that I missed <laughs> the week before literally walked across the road in front of me in my headlights. So long story short, I'm hoping he's still alive and I can get after him this year. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. But uh, one thing, if uh, another thing about spot on stock gotta have at least a little trust in your your own yardage judgment yeah we found that out a few times now you can't be 100 percent relied on the range finder which is difficult especially if you're taking shots over for me anything over 30 yards and i get a little worried about not having accurate range yeah i mean that and it's super difficult because there's no landmarks you know there's no trees in between and this and that you know to go okay well this that 20 Okay, that next tree over there is another, you know, 10. So, you know, we're at 30. So it's got to be about that 35, you know, there's nothing like that. Another thing you talked about last year, maybe it was 2019, and it was a good point. I never really thought about it, but 
coming from the east or the midwest you're so used to having a visual of a deer sized body that when you were looking at antelope a smaller body it it's harder to range again no landmarks and a different size body so i guess one tip that i would say is anyone that's planning on coming on an antelope hunt to the extent you can get a, either a paper silhouette or a 3d target or something that's life-size and get used to looking at that for range estimation yeah you know or uh even do your practice when you're out uh, driving the roads glass and for uh, that summer bow, but look at some of those smaller does. Try to estimate, you know, how far that is and take your rangefinder with you. That could be a huge help. Yeah, we talked about that. I think it seems like about a year and a half old whitetail doe in the east or midwest sure. is about the size of an antelope buck, about, you know, 110 pounds, 120 pounds, somewhere around there. For sure, yeah. They uh, they seem a lot bigger on TV, but once you see them uh, in life, you know, they're like, wow, that's uh, a lot, lot smaller. Yeah, not a big target. So that's like a brief overview of our experiences with elk, antelope, and mule deer. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit more, but I know another area our thinking has evolved quite a bit is when it comes to gear. So let's start out about talking about your gear list. Maybe when you went to Colorado, what was in your pack on that elk hunt versus what you take on a typical elk hunt in Montana now? Well, Colorado, that was my first trip. And what what took to Colorado maybe about a quarter of it i would take with me on a hunt now give me some items that you packed then that you would not pack now one thing i learned if you're going to be hunting with a buddy split the weight up uh there's no reason to take two spider scope you know two spiders uh you know one person with a pair of binos and a spider's you know sufficient you can even break it down to uh you know one person carry the stove and one person carry the fuel you know kind of a deal it, it is kind of a pain you know kind of waiting for you know the other person's water to uh to boil but yeah um it's also a pain carrying five or ten extra pounds <laughs> i'm trying to think of like the colorado trip i mean i had i had a full-on medical kit prepared for the worst i had glow sticks you know in case i was successful uh the game bags i had uh were you know cheap walmart game bags you hear a lot of people talk about weight and uh it's, it is something that you you know really uh pay attention to and at that point in time too you know that was uh you know, that was kind of like, you know, pretty much the prime of like my uh, physical capability. You know, I was kind of like getting really into my stride. And uh, yeah, 10 days of carrying that stuff around. That, I think it was like 60, I think it was like 65 pounds my bag was. And it just, it, it was, the bag didn't fit. Um, I Actually, I think I had a... What kind of bag were you using then? A Horn Hunter bowl curl. Okay. And then you got a Kafaro now, right? And I got a Kafaro now. Let's go on a little tangent here. Let's say you got a limited budget and you've got a thousand bucks, which I don't think is unreasonable for people that are thinking about gearing up for a Western hunt. Nope. What's your top three things you're spending money on if you got that kind of money? What's super important to you now? Boots and bag. Boots, bag, and then probably, you know, make sure my, uh, you know, I have a decent base layer. That would probably be my, my, my first three, but oh, tarp or, uh, your sleeping bag, never mind. Yeah, you know something to sleep in. If you're not, if you're not sleeping comfortable, you're gonna wake up groggy. You're gonna wake up irritable, and it's just gonna be, you're not gonna be in the right mind frame to carry on that today. Especially the grind. You know, it's you know as as we both know, it's a grind. It's a grind. So uh, the feet, you know, taking care of your feet, you know, that's where the boots come into play. Especially coming from, you know, the east. You know, even you know I'm from like, you know the Adirondack region, so you know I still have that steep terrain. But nothing like the the grades that you see around here. 
think the big difference is too, there's a difference between a one or two mile access. Then you sit down for three or four hours for your hunt. And then you got a one or two mile hike out versus out here where there's been a couple of days. I know for a fact, we've put on 12, 13 miles in the mountains. And at the end of the day, if your boots aren't good, yeah, I mean, your feet are screaming anyways, but if you got bad boots on, you're in for a real rough hunt. Yeah. Especially, you know, like, uh, you're, you're coming from out there and you get hit day one and, uh, day one is always the worst you know pretty much i mean other than the fact that you're uh you know you're jacked up that you know you're finally there and getting up but i think that's when uh you know you have too much adrenaline or too much juice going into it so you could probably burn yourself out a little bit more and uh you mess up your feet or your feet start hurting on day one and you're there for seven ten days you're you know you're just going to slowly decline after that's not going to get easier yeah that's a really good point i don't know any other way to describe it other than pacing and exactly what you said, you feel the urge, especially if you're coming as a non-resident, it's overwhelming to get out there and just pound ground. But you got to think of the long haul in the big picture. I mean, yeah, maybe you can hike 10, 12 miles that first day, but you'd be a lot better off doing six or seven or eight and saving some gas in the tank. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, that's key right there, just saving some gas in the tank. You know, and then the pack there, um, that horn hunter did not fit me whatsoever. So carrying that 65 pounds was, you know, absolutely miserable. I was kind of walking at a, you know, with a slight slant in my back and wasn't standing upright. And that's when I, um, I decided to go with the Kafaru there. And, uh, you know, I contacted, uh, you know, someone over there and, uh, talked to him about my, you know, my torso and all that and, uh, got fitted for it. And yeah, I mean, carrying 65 pounds with that thing, you know, is like, it's like 30 pounds, you know? Yeah, game changer. Yep. Just like the boots. Yep. Yep, I mean, you know, you can definitely do it. You know, you don't have to go out and buy, you know, the crispies or the kind of tracks and stuff like that, especially if you're going to do it once a year. You know, I, I can I can see that. But even back east, you know, I got mine back before I even, you know, came out here. And uh, it just made those hikes even better. Yeah. Can't say enough about a good boot or a good bag. So you also mentioned your base layers. What about glass out west, especially? That's I guess I'm, I'm picking on you there because I feel like boots are boots are super important, and I definitely want a pack that fits. But my number three item would definitely be. I mean, because I'm tempted to say glass is number one, but if your feet are messed up or you can't carry your bag, then your hunt's over on day one. So glass probably makes sense right. as number three. But uh, I used binoculars in Michigan. I, I carried them semi-regularly in a tree stand, and I always had them in my truck for the glass and leading up to the season. But out here, I think I'd be lost without them. I mean, I'm using glass every hunt all the time. For sure. I, 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 just, I just think, like, well, I guess my top three, I'm thinking about keeping myself in for the long haul. But, yeah, I mean, you, you definitely need at least binos. Yeah, so let's talk about that, too. I think that's something, uh, one of the misconceptions I had on my first Western hunt is that I definitely needed a spotting scope. I don't think that's the case anymore. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you really need to. Um, that's going to be all like your, uh, your, your region uh, specific. Like, you know, if, if you East scout spot that have like four parks in it. Real quick, explain to people that don't know the lingo. What's a park? Um, Wally world. <laughs> <laughs> a, a park is basically like a meadow. I don't know the reason for it being called a park. I don't either. I guess for us Easterners, I guess it's a, you know, it's a meadow. It'd be like a grass grazing area within the timber, a timberless area within the timber right. where they all come out to graze. Right. So, you know, to me, I, 
unless you're going to be in a spot where you're going to be at a good glassing point where you can see multiple, um, you know, I just don't see, you know, carrying a spot or the extra weight all the way for it when you could probably just get away with using, you know, a good pair of binos, especially it, it depends on if you're on heavy timbered or if you're in like, um, you know, we'll say like Eastern Montana, um, you know, Southwest Montana or, or, you know, up North, you know, it just depends on the train. You know, I still don't think I'd carry a spotter. My expectations were in reality were kind of reversed. I thought I was going to need the spotter on the elk hunt all the time. And now I'd rather carry it on the deer hunt because mm-hmm. the some of the areas that I mule deer hunt, like I said, they're not very heavily timbered. And it's real helpful to have the spotter. So you can check out a buck a mile or two away sometimes and get eyes on it and see if that's something that you want to go after, if that's kind of a borderline buck. Saves you a lot of walking in the deer hunting areas that I found for mule deer specifically. But obviously for a whitetail, you, you don't need a spotter. That's another thing I guess you'd say, you know, for the spotter, if you are up in, you know, high country uh, for elk, you know, as opposed to using just binos, you know, some of those parks might be far enough away where you can't really tell, you know, if that bull is something you want to go after. I mean, to me too, if I was being, if I was on a, uh, you know, an out-of-state hunt, non-resident hunt, if I can make out that it was a bull, I'm going after him. Kind, yeah. of, kind of a deal, you know. 100%. But if it's something, you know, along the lines of, you know, if I wanted to see what kind of bull that is, that's where you might, you know, have the advantage of having that spotter with you, to, you know, to save yourself the legs of going those extra, you know, that extra mile or two in that mountain terrain just to get binos on them to see, like, okay, well, this isn't something I want to go after. Yeah, I would rather carry a good 10 or 12 power bino with a tripod, a light tripod, because I think stabilized, your binos actually do a real good job. Then I would carry a big spotting scope around because, again, if you're not being super picky about what you're going after, I think that's more where the spotting scope comes in for me is like if I'm looking for a certain class of animal, which being so new, I'm usually not. Right. Yeah, and even even raghorns, man, like you can tell a rag. When he swings his head up, like you see those things, you know. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, that's good. So we talked about boots. We talked about bag, talked about binos versus spotting scope. Let's talk about what else, what's in your bag now. So those are like your main items. And I think maybe we should preface this with, we've gotten away from what you said, the Colorado, like the week long 10 day backpack type hunt mode. And we've got into more day hunts or overnights or maybe two day hunts. So the bag looks a little different in that situation. So what are you carrying now? Water some snacks throughout the day just to, you know, have a light tarp uh, just in case we get into an area that you want to post up and wait for them in the morning. Obviously the kill kits in there and uh, you know, your bow really, you know, we're, we're not far enough away that, uh, that we couldn't make it back to the truck to, uh, to reload, you know, our packs and stuff like that. So, um, and that's just been another thing that has been a huge learning experience, you know, of moving out here and, what was perceived uh, what you're supposed to do as what can really be done yeah expectation versus reality i think i definitely had the same idea i need to get five miles back in the timber past where everybody's at and that's where all the elk are going to be holed up but so last year here's a prime example so tim and i were in a permit unit last year and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on but it's an area not everyone can hunt you have to draw the tag and we're driving up for the first evening and right before we turned to where we're going to camp on public land, I spotted a bull, <laughs> not even a mile off the road, and a really nice bull too. He was a giant. It was a giant bull, 
So that goes to show you, and this is a main or fairly main access road into that area. Yep. And there's this bull with eight or nine cows yep. a mile off the road. You can't, uh, just like deer, deer end up in some, some low pressured places where you wouldn't think, I think elk do the same things. Yep. You know, that's, that's kind of a, you know, what I've learned from talking with locals and, uh, listen to a, a few different people, um, within the podcast is, uh, Put it this way, you have everybody, well, everybody thinks, you know, what we did, and we thought, too, you know, we have to go back deep. And then you have your people who won't, okay? So the people who won't, you know, what's their max? You know, they're going about a mile, two miles. The people who, you know, who want to go back as far as they possibly can, you know, the, the stories of, you know, I packed them out from, you know, 15 miles back and stuff like that on my feet. You know, so those guys are going back, you know, six, seven miles, well, What's going on in between there? There's a lot of good-looking land in between stuff, but people won't go because, oh, I got to go back. I have to go all the way back there. So I think what happens is, you know, like I'm not saying that those elk aren't way in the back, but uh, I think, you know, they just get kind of pushed into it. It's just like a whitetail, you know, pushed into a little buffer zone. They could be way in the back, but they could be in the middle too, and, and we found uh, on quite a few occasions that yep. they have been. Okay, so we... Kind of got off on a tangent earlier when we were talking about whitetails, but I had some <laughs> more uh, specific questions for you about your experiences coming from New York now to Montana. And we touched on this a little bit, but so you actually, you loved archery hunt. So you've been archery hunting during gun season. So I want to kick this off by start, starting a discussion about hunting pressure and compare and contrast New York and Montana archery and then hunting archery during Montana's gun season. The comparison between New York and uh, Montana whitetail archery season, there is no comparison. Uh, there's absolutely no comparison. I think it partially has to do with the deer density. We have a really good good population here, especially when you find those pockets. You know, there's some really good pockets there. The archery uh, season, definitely less pressure. Uh, most of the time in that September time frame, my, uh, my focus has been on elk, and it probably will be until... Uh, I, you know, get that elusive, elusive bull down on the ground. But, you know, there's times where uh, I've been able to slip away during the week. And, you know, on the weekend, um, I had some buddies coming to town. So I got out in the morning and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, the, there's no pressure on those bottoms whatsoever. You don't see anybody really keen in for them. The rifle season is nothing like New York. There's nothing Orange Army. I've been hunting specific areas throughout rifle season with my bow. I haven't seen a single person doing a drive. I haven't seen, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Actually, I mean, I've hardly heard any shots. So let's back up and, and put it in perspective. Think back to as many archery hunts as you can during archery season. How many other archery hunters have you seen? You'd have to say probably you'd run into one to two people every three hunts, you know, at least walk by you. Or, you know, you'd hear them and, you know, stuff like that. There's one or two guys out there, but it's not. Or are you talking about here in Montana? Or, I mean, New York? No, I'm, I was talking about Montana. All your archery deer hunts during archery season, how many other hunters have you seen? Let me add this up. Uh, zero. <laughs> zero. Okay, I was I was a little surprised when you said yeah. one every couple hunts. So that was New York. Yeah, that was that was New York. Okay. Yeah, there, there's your comparison right there. Yeah. And then what about, I know the one hunt specifically when you shot your buck last year. You said you saw one or two other gun hunters, right? Uh, or was that on the other piece? No, that was that was the first year. Okay. 
Yeah, that was the first year. Um, I did see hunters last year. Um, that's the guy that shot the doe, or the guy and the girl that shot the doe and left her in the field. Okay. Um, that was like the only time I've ever seen hunters, and that was the that's what I saw. Yeah. So, night and day difference, and I like to think about it like this too because I'm a numbers guy, so it makes sense to me to think about a lot of things in numbers. I think New York is real similar to Michigan. I know Michigan, the the figures vary, but there's anywhere between 650,000 and 750,000 rifle hunters, and I think it's comparable in New York. Pretty much. And then in Montana, the population of the entire state is 1.1 million, and Montana is also, I believe, the fourth biggest state. So you've got a way bigger state. I think it's the fifth. Is it? Okay, fifth. Well, it's in, it's in the top five. Right, right. So you've got the fourth or fifth biggest state with one of the smaller populations and i believe the most public land of the lower 48 states i think so so when you add all those factors in uh, there's a lot of area to hunt and then when you factor in two i like to think about things and i don't know this for a fact but makes sense logically a lot of locals are hunting private lands because they have friends or family that are ranchers or landowners so the public land is pretty low pressure out here which is which is great that's a big reason why i moved out here to begin with yeah, it's kind of the same thing, you know, New York or anywhere else, you know, you still got to put in a little bit of work just for, I guess you'd say the quality, you know, you, you can, you can put in no work whatsoever and I guarantee you're still going to come across deer, but you know, an, an older buck is an older buck and you know, you're still going to find those, you know, those little pockets that are more, more of their key terrain, you know, or habitat. Yeah, definitely not a booner behind every tree. And what I've noticed with the whitetail, I think you have too, is that there's a lot of good solid bucks there's a lot of like 120 to 135 maybe 140 and then anything above 140 kind of gets rare not that they're not out there but it seems like even the mature bucks a lot of them are around that 130 140 mark anything above that that 150 mark you know they're they're definitely here but they're not behind every you know every other tree still got it you know you're gonna look for those yeah do your due due diligence and really you know get out and look for them let's talk about habitat so Briefly, wh- what kind of habitat did you hunt primarily in New York, and what are you hunting out here for whitetails? Big blocks of timber, um, you, you know, 1,200 acres of, you know, just continuous, you know, um, mountain region, looking for white oaks and, you know, creek bottom crossings and all oh, your, your your typical hill country, you know, uh, whitetail habitat. And now I'm hunting maybe 50 by 100 yard wide strips of timber um <laughs> way different yeah w- way different they, they are thick i mean uh, a lot of these you know pockets uh you know or areas are you know are extremely thick especially with russian olive and stuff like that but you know there's no white oaks to key in on uh, a lot of these animals are still just they're, they're feeding on natural you know browse and i think it's no secret but if people are considering a deer hunt for whitetails in montana water's king right Water is king for everything. And what I mean about that is creeks, rivers, lakes. If you don't have water and some sort of habitat, like Tim was talking about, Russian olives, brushy, some sort of timber, uh, there's vast, vast expanses of Montana that don't have any of that stuff. So if you're looking for a deer hunt, you can you can rule most of that stuff out. Not that there will never be a white-tailed deer in there, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, they. I mean, they are, uh, obviously, they're still in the mountain regions and stuff like that, and... Uh, you know, I, I haven't, I don't know if you have, but, well, actually, you know what? You found that whitetail shed up in the, like, the, the, the coolie type areas, well, you know, the ponderosas. Yeah, so what Tim's saying is they're 
are definitely whitetails in some of those areas, but those have some timber and they might not be along a river bottom, but there's water sources within those areas. So they're not really mountain whitetails and they're not really river bottom whitetails, but there are some whitetails that occupy that middle zone, like you said. So let's compare and contrast deer numbers. So if you're coming from New York, uh, explain how many deer you might see on a typical hunt or a series of hunts, how many bucks, and then how's that compared to what you're seeing out here? So we'll, we'll go like your early, your October, early October. Um, New York might see one small buck a hunt and, you know, maybe a couple of does. I can't really, really compare because I only think I've only been out early October once here. But that time, I want to say that was like eight or nine does. Um, one doe crossed my crossed my entrance, blew, went back to bedding, then immediately turned back around and fed through. Blew again while she was blowing. Three other deer came from another area and, <laughs> and just walked through like, like, what is this deer doing, you know, kind of a deal. And they just kept on going. Now, the rut, you might see one or two bucks in New York on an archery set. Um, that was some of the, uh, you know, your, your your better pinches. That's why I always kind of focused on, you know, on uh, in New York was the pinches close to doe bedding. You know, you might see one or two cruisers. Um, last year, my best day, I had 19 bucks come by. Yeah, so, so so that's absolutely ridiculous. And how many of those? Uh, I know you were being a little more selective last year, but of those nineteen deer, if you saw those same nineteen deer in New York, how many of those would you have shot? Fourteen of them. <laughs> <laughs> so a little yeah. bit, a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, you got into a good area. Of course, it's not always like that, but it goes back to what you said earlier that the deer out here, I feel like, are about as close to what they would act like in the absence of hunting pressure as as I've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. And I've hunted quite a few different states now, so it's uh, it's different. It's a little different. It's weird. It's definitely different. I mean, obviously, within hunting, nothing's a slam dunk, but whatever you're going for, your opportunity's there for sure. And last thing I want to talk about on the, the whitetail topic is coming from New York, coming from Michigan, we're both heavy tree stand hunters. I didn't do hardly any ground hunting. I did a little, but I had never shot a buck off the ground in Michigan. And... I think both of us now, especially with the spot and stock and being out here, we're doing a lot more ground hunting. So you mixed in quite a bit of tree stand hunting, but talk about that. And uh, your 2019 buck you shot off the ground, right? Yep. Uh, actually, I've, I've taken two bucks. My best buck in PA, that was my first buck, actually. I took him off the ground. And then yeah, the 2019 buck, yeah, that was just still hunting. Still hunting the bottoms, uh, just slowly moving. That was end of October and uh saw some does moving through so I mean obviously being adaptable knowing what's going on in that time frame seeing doe go through need to get closer and uh kind of do the same thing as a spot and stalk except uh I kind of spot and stalk the uh the trail that they were on to make sure that I was uh you know covered you know not being you know open uh to anything in the area to see me and, uh, yeah, I just kind of got closer to this one specific Russian olive that I wanted to. And no sooner did I get there than I saw him coming right down that trail, you know, right behind him. And yeah, that was, uh, 15 yards on the ground. That's awesome. Yep. I hadn't shot a buck off the ground. And then since I've been out here, I shot the mule deer buck off the ground the first year. I missed the mule deer buck off the ground the second year. 
2019, I shot my biggest buck ever off the ground in South Dakota. So I think out west for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because the animals or the terrain or both, but it seems like a whitetail hunter can do a lot more ground hunting. And not, I'm not talking about out of a ground blind or even a, you know, a man-made blind out of debris or whatever, but just straight ground hunting and, and natural terrain. There's a lot more opportunities, it seems like, out here. Yeah, it seems like uh, we always talk about, uh, you know, doing what the situation calls for. And back home, some of those situations that called for that ground hunt is pretty much impossible just because how thick that stuff was. Here, it could be super thick, but you have a lot of little breaks in between where you can't get those windows. Yeah, I've noticed that too. Like in like in the Russian Isles, like you're talking about, they're not always just a huge wall. You'll get kind of like a park. You'll get a little open meadow of grass within the mm-hmm. Russian Isles. It might be 20 yards by 20 yards or timber that breaks them up. So Yep, and they're, they're, they're thick enough too that uh, you can use them as a screen, you know, to kind of move behind and, you know, whatever you need to do to get in that kind of a position. And then a lot of times, too, those Russian owls have those, uh, you know, the runways in between the two. And that they pretty much, you know, will get right between the two and follow those two, you know, kind of out. And I don't know, I don't know if I ever asked you this before, but when you shot that buck, just from what I know about seeing that type of vegetation, did you shoot under them or, like, between them? Because I know if you're in a tree stand a lot of times, it'd be hard to shoot down through oh, those. Yeah, you're not getting through that. But ground level, did you have a better view there? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was right between two uh, two main bushes kind of a deal. It wasn't – I only had one window. I only saw one side of his, uh, you know, his antlers, and that was enough to – just seeing that one side was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this guy. And I had no opportunity to even look at him or anything like that just because as soon as you hit that window – I needed to hit that window, you know, to execute that shot. And then, you know, if you have taken one more step, you know, that's done. You know, he's, he's gone. Yeah, that's what's so tough about bow hunting so often. It's like a lot of times you got five, maybe ten seconds to de- decide, is that the one or is that not the one? Well, I think we covered the whitetail topic pretty good. Let's move on to our elk hunting experiences. But before we get into that, I think we ought to preface this discussion with a high-level overview of Montana's Hunting regulations, which are very confusing. <laughs> Need a PhD. Pretty much, or a law degree, or, or both. So this was all a bit of, of a mystery to me, even after reading the regulations. So for non-residents, if you guys are listening to this podcast, there are two different types of points available for purchase. The first type is a preference point, and accumulating preference points increases your odds of drawing a tag for whatever species you're applying for. So the more preference points you have, the better odds you have of getting your actual kill tag. However, Montana also has a lot of areas within the state that can only be hunted if a hunter possesses a a permit for those special draw areas. And if a non-resident wants to hunt any of these special draw units versus the general units, and the special draw units generally have a better age class or their special draw because they have smaller populations and they can't handle the hunting pressure, But if you want to hunt special draw areas, you need to buy bonus points. And bonus points do not help you draw your deer or elk kill tag. They do help you draw a specific deer or elk unit. And those are only open by lottery drawing. So again, just a summary, preference points help you get your license or kill tag. Bonus points help you draw special hunting areas or districts. So that's the difference. I did not understand that when I hunted the first time as a non-resident and even most of the first year. Luckily, Tim and I, we were only eligible for the regular general tag, so we didn't need to 
put in for any special draws or have any bonus points. So by the time we got around to the next year, we had figured that out. But it's a bit confusing if if you're not from Montana. So with that out of the way, in 2019, Tim and I, we were not residents long enough for any of those special draws, but we were able to get resident deer and elk licenses because we had met the six-month minimum of being a resident. So that September deer and elk general season become, begins the first Saturday in September every year. So we hunted a general elk unit our first year. And that first year, Tim, let's talk about that a little bit. You actually, pretty short into the hunt, maybe even, was it the first weekend? You got a shot at a bull. So that was awesome because we were green. And I, I, I want to just tell this story real quick. Can we skip it? No, no. <laughs> I, we're not going to talk about that too much. One of the things that I think is a real good tip if you're coming out west and how we learned about this area was Tim had called the biologist and they let Tim know about one of those block management areas, which is private lands that are open to public hunting. Um, you either got to sign in or or call the landowner, depending on the, the block management type. But anyways, the biologist shared with Tim that there was a new area open and it had a lot of elk. So that's where we headed. And I remember... We drove into this area the night before the opener. We parked, and that first night, we heard a ton of bugles, and, man, were we pumped. Amazing. Actually, we didn't even get into the parking spot yet, and we saw those raghorns up on top. That's right. right they were, like, right next to the road that we were going up in. Yeah, so we saw, like, three bulls, and I don't know if you've ever seen two happier guys in your whole life. Yeah, I mean, it was just kind of like, this is it. You know, this is really going to happen. You know, yeah. like, everything is about to come together. Yeah, we got up there, and... I think we heard them from almost every single direction around us that night. Yeah, we must have heard three or four different groups of bulls. Yeah. And then we wake up. Yeah, that was a miserable, absolutely <laughs> miserable night. So this is our first year elk hunting, and it rained like torrential downpour, and my tent I thought was going to blow over because yeah. it was so windy. It was blowing my tent poles, and I was so excited. I don't think I hardly slept at all that first night. Yeah, and – Woke up, we had a game plan going into uh, the morning. We woke up and that game plan was completely shot. Uh, it was like 30 mile per hour winds and our visibility was 50 yards. Yeah, that, you know? that's being optimistic, yeah. I think. It was bad. The, the fog, so we we decided uh, you know, to look, look at the maps or the, uh, the radar and uh, we saw that there was a window coming up, so we kind of just held, uh, held tight. The wind eventually died down and... Um, you know, actually, so we were car camping. Um, you know, we're, yeah, we were basically you know camping next to the cars, and and uh, what happened there? Oh, I know what happened. Yeah, and so um, all of a sudden, uh, wait, who who was it? You or me? I think it was me. Yeah, it was you. Like, I, I oh, that's right, that's right. I remember that because I'm like, I was half asleep again, and I'm like, man, I thought I heard a vehicle. Man, I'm an idiot. You know, like I'm, I'm daydreaming now. Here we go, and then. Yeah, so then the fog starts lifting, and we had been kind of nodding off because we didn't sleep too good that first night and waiting for the rain to lift, and I think it was about 9 o'clock. Yeah. So it was still raining a little bit, but the fog started lifting, and I look over, and 200 yards from where we're camping, <laughs> <laughs> there's like 15 elk and a pretty nice bull in there. Yep. Two greenhorns. Uh, we kind of just stood there trying to figure out what, okay, well, this is awesome, but what do we do? <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't have a whole lot of idea what to do in no. that situation. So what? No. Did those end up running off? What happened? I don't even remember. I think we just let them work off, didn't we? 
because we're going to try to catch back up with them. Yeah, actually, I think that's what we did. We kind of let them get into the timber a little bit, and we tried to circle in and around them. And we never did see that specific group again that nope, day. Nope. But let's talk about that area a little bit. So pro tip number one for, for guys that have been here a little bit, and you've talked to the biologist quite a bit and have good results. So yep. call the biologist or call the game warden or both, and those guys are generally pretty helpful. I think the only downside to that is they probably tell everybody that calls the same thing. The thing is, I, I think that I've gotten more and more information out of people um, being way more specific. You know, don't, you know, hey, uh, you know, can you tell me, you know, about, you know, the elk herd, you know, in, in this particular unit and do your, uh, you know, your e-scouting, have your air areas figured out first and then um, have your questions uh, lined out, you know, just just like you're doing an interview i would actually give um you know an instance this year i talked to a biologist in an area that we're going to try and right now you know montana's in a huge drought so uh you know my questions were you know having to to do with uh water sources you know what you know what happens in, in those dry years you know are those elk known to known to migrate you know which direction do they want to migrate during that time montana is a free range state as far as cattle figuring out what areas um you know, the cattle are um, going to be grazing on and what areas the cattle um, won't be grazing on. Um, you know, this is, those cattle graze all the way up into those national forests. So, you know, that's something that has been a slow, you know, learning experience. Man, it's amazing. You know, you're like, you get back, you know, three, four miles and you're like, okay, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're back in there, you know, you should be seeing some elk sign and yeah, you do. But then all of a sudden you see a huge, you know, pile of cow crap, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're like, oh man. But that's just, that's just been one obstacle that we've had to deal with. But, um, yeah, being more specific, know the drainages, uh, know specific peaks and stuff like that. You know, the more the more that you show that you've been doing your homework, not looking for a handout, I think they're a little bit up to, uh, you know, to give you a little bit more information. Yeah. To summarize, ask better questions, get better answers. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like the um, this first year that we're talking about, our general, that guy, um, he kind of gave me that vague those vague answers about some stuff, but then I kept on going on about, uh, what was going on about that? About two or three different drainages. And then I started talking about, um, you know, the calves, you know, like where, where, where's the cows, you know, where are the calving at and this and that. And, you know, just getting a little bit more and more detailed. And, um, the guy, the conversation went from like, Oh yeah, there's elk over there. Yeah. There's elk over here. You know, like, yeah, you know, it's pretty good area over there. You do see a lot of pressure to, uh, yeah, well, actually, you know what, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you do see a lot of cows and calves, you know, over in this area. They do tend to come over here. Actually, over this drainage, over, if you look up along this, you know, this high line, you know, this elevation, that area tends to keep a lot of green grass. And so the guy really loosened up a lot. And then he's like, that's when he finally was like, he's actually, you know what, there's a, a new BMA that's going to be opening up over there, too. Um, I know, you know, some of the surrounding uh, private landowners have had issues with elk. So, you know. And that kind of led everything into that area. Yeah. And that's one thing. Well, two things I wanted to bring up. One real quick is you talked about cattle and I had no idea how cattle and elk would interact, mm -hmm. but we found out on more than one occasion that the elk don't mind the cattle or vice versa because cattle have actually screwed us up several times. Yeah. And the, the bull that you shot at, actually, I thought the cattle had scared the elk off, but they didn't. So they'll get pretty close. But what Tim was talking about the grazing that is something to keep in mind because if a spot's been grazed all summer, the grass is pretty well mowed down. Not to say that there won't be elk or deer in there, but it's probably uh, 
what's the cliche? Look for some greener pastures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up is we're hunting a general unit. And of course, it's going to vary wildly depending on where you're at in the state and the population. But I didn't have super high expectations for the general unit. And we saw an absolute pile of elk in that area that year. Opening weekend, we got into that bugle fest. I got that spot on stock on that bull. Um, actually, the cat, the cattle that he just spoke about um, spooking the, the bull up, I actually used them to close the distance. They don't mind them, and actually, I think they almost even use them, uh, you know, as an alarm, right? A- extra set of eyes or whatever, because they, they they get spooked, you know, they kind of do, but you know, they're they're definitely not mingling, you know, with each other. But uh, yeah, we got that spot on stock on that day. We saw like, what three different groups. Yeah, I think opening weekend, if my memory serves me correct, and that was only we only hunted there two days. We ended up seeing about seventy five cows and I think eight different bulls. Yep, he got into the bugle fest. Got the shot off. And then I think it was that last day, one of the bigger bulls must have came off the high off the high country. He started making his way down in, and we ran into that guy, which I dubbed him as the, uh, well, I think both of us kind of dubbed him as uh, the dinosaur because he yeah. had a growl. Real raspy bugle. Yeah. Yep. And I, again, general unit. So we kind of, we hunted there for the two days. And actually when we were on our way out, there's more people coming in that day. So... I think we went back there once more in September. That was when we went back in the middle. That's when we had that the bugle fest. Where yeah, we we must have heard two hundred bugles in one day easily. Most of them on private, unfortunately. Yeah, we, we could not get them to budget. They would get up and you could t- hear them getting closer, but they w- they knew about that property line. And then I ended up going back October twenty sixth, which was the last day of the archery season. And uh, that was probably the most amazing day that I've ever seen. And it was a bugle fest. I went in there. I, w- I was tired. I had a tender date that night. Ooh. And, and uh, well, I, I turned that one down and cause, <laughs> because I had to go elk hunting in the morning. Yeah. So uh, I, I, Priorities. I, I, had, I had like three hours of sleep. And that's a, I think that's like a three-mile hike back into that specific unit. And before sun came up, um, I had no intentions on even hearing bugles. I was going to do some glassing and try to get some spot and stalk in and they were bugling and I could hear the cows mewing. So it was dark out. And so I just got into myself into a position, sat back and listened to what direction they were heading into. So as they're making this, you know, as they're, I'm listening to them, I'm I'm on Onyx trying to figure it out. I'm like, okay, they're going to go up here, here, made a move. And the whole entire herd, I mean, you're 30, 40 out came up through, they're all split, they're split up, you know, they're not all single file line, but uh, they all came up in front of me, you know, and from anywhere b- between you know seventy five yards to you know a couple hundred yards. But it was just the the vocalization of them was ridiculous. They made it past me. Um, I heard two rags. Well, I didn't know the rags then. I heard two bulls fighting. Um, I could hear the the, the clinking. I uh, I made the move. I got in close. Um, I saw the two fighting, so I was focused on them. I did not look be- basically between me and the two smaller bulls fighting. There was another one standing there, and there was too much brush in the way that I couldn't see that. I don't know why I did this. I uh, I decided to take a picture with my phone, so I had my phone in my hand, and as I did that, of the two bulls fighting, that little rag popped up around the corner. So um, I, I had an arrow knocked. So as soon as he saw me, he kind of bounced off. I got drawn back. I dropped the phone, got drawn back, didn't get a shot off. Kept on hanging around all day long. Uh, I knew kind of what area they went into, and then later on that day. Uh, 
I heard them, or actually I spotted them uh, up in the, you know, they're getting up, moving. Uh, the one, the dinosaur, he started bugling again. And uh, it made a move all the way up to the top of the mountain. And uh, I tried to get around on him. I bugled at him. I tried to get him, you know, riled up. He would pace back and forth. Uh, he'd never break away from those cows. The cows started going downhill, down the mountain. So I, I ran all the way back down the mountain. And uh, by now, I kind of had a better feel for the layout of the land. And there was a, uh, a big cliff that you could either go, you know, onto the east side of it or the right side of it. And I was on the east side of it, or the west side. So there's only one way for them to really go down through there. So I made the, the run all the way down around. By the time I got down to the bottom, the, the herd was already moving through. I got to like 40 yards, got drawn back, and I could not get a single elk to stop. I'm sitting there, meow, meow, you know, <laughs> going, and, and every time a bull would come through, I'm like, meow, meow, you know, as loud as could be. And that dinosaur went ripping through there, and it was like the second or last uh, cow elk she stopped in that zone, uh, in that little lane. And uh, so the pen let her fly, but I'm headed a little too far forward, and I had blood for like 50 yards, and you know that thing that stopped. Yeah, you're pretty sure that was like a, a square shoulder shot. Yeah, the, the the sound of it, you know, right. it was kind of like that. Yeah. Well, to summarize, let's probably wrap up the elk discussion. But if you're looking to hunt elk in Montana, don't be discouraged if you have to hunt general units, because if you do some of these things, like call the biologist, call the warden, you know, do your normal homework and e scouting, read some stuff online. There's pretty good hunting and and definitely in some of the general areas. Do not go on Facebook and say, hey, how good is this area? <laughs> right. Yeah, nobody's going to help you out there. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, we're not going to either. No. But Try Idaho. Yeah, right. There's, uh, <laughs> there's definitely some good elk hunting to be had. So lucky for us, we drew the special permit again this year, so we won't be hunting general areas. But if we have to in the future, I'm not discouraged by that at all. I think maybe the age class is a little lower based mm-hmm. on what we've seen, but the numbers are can still be real good in, in some of the general units. So yeah, for sure. Well, actually, this year, uh, are you gonna talk about bear? You talk about that same herd. Let's move into spring bear. So I want to start out the, the bear discussion by saying, and I think Tim will agree, we're very fair weather bear hunters. Yeah, <laughs> not really, really into it, but it'd be cool to do. Yeah, so I buy a bear tag because while elk hunting, and we've seen bears a couple times now, elk hunting, so if you have the tag and you want to put a stock on a bear, then you can do it. And did you spring bear hunt at all last year? Mm -mm. No, I didn't either. So this was our first foray into spring bear hunting, so we are not experts by any means, full disclosure. But we we did pick up a few things this year, so if you want to go ahead and and talk about our first spring bear hunt uh, this year on the opener, how that went. Yeah, so we went to uh, the same spot that we went for a general elk hunt. That year that we went there, we saw that mom and cub. And then one of the times that I was there, I ran into a boar. Oh, actually, and then another time, I think it was last year, or the year before, going back in there, uh, I saw a chocolate face. So I know there's bear in there. Yep. Um, we also saw some uh, some sign. We, we get in there opening day, and we get up to our glassing knob, and we're kind of like, you know, doing some glassing, surveying in the area. All of a sudden, it's like, is that a bugle? Yeah, I thought he was joking at first. And what was it, May 31st? No, I think, what's bear open? What is bear? May 1st. May 1st. Yeah, or is it April? May 31st, or April 31st. No, it closes May 31st. April, it's like April 31st. Then. April okay, 30th. 
We follow the laws, so whatever days spring bear open, <laughs> whatever days on my calendar at home, that's when we go. That's yeah, when we it's went. either I think it's either April fifteenth or May first. April fifteenth sounds about right. Okay. Actually, anyways, but yeah, anyway, so it's April, and uh, yeah, all of a sudden, like, is that a bugle? And all of a sudden, you know, a few minutes later, all of a sudden, you hear that that weak bugle again. So we we get up and uh, we kind of creep up 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 over this little other than the little knoll, and uh, sure shit, how many elk were out there? Oh, it had to be like 70. <laughs> it was a big, big old pile. No bears, a lot of elk, though. Yeah, no bears, a lot of elk, and they were just bugling and mewing, just carrying it on, you know, having a good old time. And I felt like one of those posts on Facebook that shows up in, like, the second week of October when the first buck starts grunting or the year-old buck chases, ruts on. The ruts on. Yeah, rut was yep. on in April. Yep. yep, definitely. It was a late rut this year out here. But, uh... <laughs> Yeah, that, that was our that was our first trip, and then we didn't go out until a little bit later in the season. And um, well, you I, went once by yourself. Yeah, I went once by myself. I uh, I came across a, a nice chocolate, tried to make a stock on it. That failed. Shell is horrible to try to stock on. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. So you spotted this bear. You're Tim's a diehard bow hunter, so he's bow hunting. And uh, during any big game rifle season, which rifle was open, you have to wear orange. So he's out there with his bow and his orange on, and the bear was uphill, right? Yep, it was uphill. Um, uh, my hunting partner here was uh, supposed to go with me. Uh, basically, so what our our plan is is um, it was my anniversary, so <laughs> I wanted to live to hunt another day. Fair enough, but yeah. So what, what our plan kind of is is uh, you know, I got the bow, and uh, you know, Jeremy has the rifle. So if it's in a you know situation where he can take the shot, um, or you know. Basically, if I can make a stock, then we'll try that one. But if it isn't in a situation, um, kind of like what you know, I find myself in. You know, that's where you know he can take the long gun out. You know, reach out and uh, make the shot. So I was literally on my way back to the vehicle again. I think I did 10, 10 11 miles that day. Weather was real crappy. I couldn't see. I couldn't glass. You know, I'd try to get to this point. You know, this point, and just could not see anything. And I was a little. Well, over a mile from the car and uh i turned my head looked up the you know up this big park and uh a, it was kind of a cliffy area but uh i see movement get the binos up sure, sure enough there's a big you know chocolate phase uh boar and i think he was like 237 perfect rifle range <laughs> um yeah yeah yeah, yeah i tried to make the stock on it uh, like i said it was shell and shell on um, a steep, steep slope just isn't good. You can't get footing. It's, you know, rocks are falling. But I did manage to get within distance of hearing a huff and him take off. So um, so that, that was my second time out. And then the third time out, um, you know, Jeremy came along and, uh, you know, Shauna came along too, which is real cool to have, uh, you know. Um, Shauna's my girlfriend for anyone wondering who Shauna is. She's she's always a riot to, to have along any type of adventure. But, yeah, the three of us got out there, and, uh, yeah, we got up to a, a, a glassing spot. This isn't kind of your traditional spot. You know, normally you want to get up super high and glass down in to see more and more. This is kind of almost the same level as a lot of the places, so you're kind of limited, but you can see more than different areas than you could if you got super high. Yeah, so our setup was kind of, we were in a drainage. We walked up one side of the drainage uphill, and then we were glassing across to the other side, which was still borderline rifle range, four or 500 yards, because of kind of a tighter drainage. 
And that was the the same genre area you'd seen the bear the week before, correct? Yep. We got up there, and uh, of course that bear didn't show back up. But uh, but old eagle eye over here, uh, he spotted a big old uh, big old black blob a little ways away. Yeah. So I think when we looked on Onyx at that bear, and the only reason I knew it was a bear is because it was a black dot that was moving, <laughs> but it was like a mile and a half away, and I think we had about an hour and a half. Of right. light left but the bear was way up so we would have had to go down walk a mile and a half and a big climb probably eight hundred thousand feet and then hope that it was still in this drainage so our plan was to try to relocate him in the morning and that that didn't end up happening you know mother nature fooled us actually uh we got up probably like you know an hour before light and it was just horrible Howling wind. Howling wind. It's like 30 like, mile an hour, 40 mile an hour wind. You know, you can't make a shot in this and, you know, this and that. So, you know, we kind of bailed on it and, you know, kind of just went, uh, we kind of just went back to sleep and stuff and uh, woke up like an hour after sunlight. And this ideal conditions. It's perfect. It's beautiful <laughs> and sunny out, you know, no wind. And, oh, God. Did I mention the part where we're fair weather bear hunters? Yep, yeah. yep, yep. So... On a more serious note, though, in summary, I think, one, we are far from bear experts, but what did we learn this year? I think one thing we learned is that for us, or at least the tactics we were employing, the second half of the season towards the end of May yes. seemed a lot better. Yep. We didn't we didn't have much luck early on an early hunt there at all. So if I was going to bear hunt again this spring, which I probably will, I'd like to, uh, I'm going to definitely target like those last two weeks of May, I think. I think... Uh Give it time to green up, let the bears spread out, let them get up moving. That's just my guess, you know. And it just seems like more and more people are, uh, more people I talk to who are into it more, they kind of wait for those, uh, you know, those last two weeks. Yeah, for sure. That's kind of our overview of, of the species, but something else that's real important, and we mentioned this a few times, was block management areas. So I want to go over those a little bit. And if you're not familiar with the block management area, if you're not from Montana, you probably aren't. But a lot of states have similar programs. A block management area is privately owned lands that are open to the public for hunting. And in return for the private landowners opening up, the state pays the landowners a fee that varies on, I think, the size of the land, how many hunters they get. I don't know all the exact inputs in the formula, but private landowners get paid to let the public come hunt their lands. And from what I understand, this is a relatively new program, came out like the late 90s, and that's the state's attempt to prevent leasing from taking over all the private lands and to incentivize private landowners to allow public hunting. So there's two types of BMAs, and Tim, you've hunted a bunch of BMAs, right? Yeah, both of them. Yeah, I, I have as well. So there's type one and type two. So if you're looking at your Montana access book and you're planning your hunt, this is pretty important stuff to know. So a type one BMA simply requires that the hunter sign a card and the, the card's got like your name, date, your vehicle type, your license plate. And then you sign that card and there's a drop box that's generally located at one or several locations around the perimeter of the property. And that's it. You sign in, follow the laws, they're all walk-in access only. So you sign in and go on your merry way. And then the type two BMA, these require advanced permission, and that's obtained from the landowner and or the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks District office that presides over that region that the BMA is in. And type 2 reservations, Tim, they usually open, what, one to two weeks prior to the season, like the last week or 10 days August? 
Yeah, I think it's like the last week. Most of them, most of them will have uh, they'll, they'll say right on. Um, so the type twos definitely they all have their own specific rules. You know, that's just set up by the landowner. You know, for the most part, they open up about a week to two weeks beforehand. Now some of them don't even open up until the actual September opener. Yeah. So if you're looking for antelope hunting for that that early antelope season, some of those places won't be open. That's a good point. So most of the BMAs, I believe, open September 1st, and then deer and elk and regular antelope, not the early archery, but regular antelope, all open the first Saturday in September. But uh, we've had some pretty good experiences on BMAs, and I know you can turn. There's a layer on an onyx. When you turn it on, it'll be the like red polka dot layer. Those are the block management areas. And if you're planning a hunt, you're going to want to look into some of those to expand your your land access horizons and the type twos. So you've you've called a few, right? Did yep. you call FWP or the landowners or both? So using Onyx there, uh, clicking on that piece of land, a type is a type two, and then clicking on their, uh, I think it's information. So right now it's actually shut down. Every year, uh, pretty much after turkey season, the block management management areas will still show on onyx but if you click for the area info it'll say uh not active or no info that normally is updated when the access books come out anyways you'll click on it it'll tell you um about the land you know what's there to hunt you know what their primary species are but then it'll tell you to either go to the ranch call the ranch headquarters or reach out to fwp in that specific region Again, Tim mentioned a book. There's a book that you can request, and maybe you can download it too, but I, th- I think maybe you have to actually request it. it. Probably is now because of COVID. Yeah, but it'll give you all the block management areas in each district, and that's an invaluable resource. So if you're planning a hunt, you're going to want to get that book as soon as possible because, again, those those type two where you got to get the permission from the landowner, those open up the last week of uh, August roughly. So you're going to want to know about those, so. Also, too, like your type ones, um, most of those are you have to sign in daily. So some of those larger pieces, you have to, uh, you know, if you hunt them, if you're kind of camping close to it, can you, a lot of them you can't camp on those pieces. Um, but if you're planning on camping close to them every day uh, before you go hunt them, you have to go back to that, um, that, that drop box, sign in. And then some of those type twos, you can request it for like two or three days. But that also allows, you know, like a certain, like they might allow uh, two groups of three. Yeah, so the type twos are definitely more restrictive. It's harder to get the permission. Not that it's hard. I mean, they're enrolled in the program. So generally, if they're not booked, they'll give you permission. But there's just a little more planning and forethought that's got to go into those. Well, we're uh, we're running up on an hour and a half here. So one last question, and uh, we'll probably have Tim back on for sure at, at some point in the future. Uh, not probably, definitely, but. One other thing I wanted to discuss. What would you do 2021 Tim Buno? What would you tell 2019 Tim Buno? So you're coming to Montana. Now you got two years under your belt. Let's assume you were a local and you just moved here. What would you tell yourself? What's real important? And let's, uh, let's just think big picture, not necessarily species specific, but big picture. What would you tell yourself hunting in Montana? I'm trying to think of my mindset coming out here. Uh, a million things I'd tell myself. I think for the most part, go ahead and do the things that you want to do. Don't, um, I think my first year, I was just so gung-ho on the hunting thing. I didn't go out fishing, fish often. I didn't, um, 
you know, I was just so wrapped up on, uh, you know, trying to, you know, be successful that first season. I would tell myself to, to get out and enjoy Montana some more, you know, not just your, your hunting activities, you know, there's, there's so much stuff to do out here. You're hiking, you know, you're fishing and there's, it's endless for an outdoorsman. I'm not just talking about outdoorsman as in, you know, the hunting and fishing person too, you know, so. Yeah. Then you got Yellowstone and Glacier and all that stuff, the parks and a lot of the good hiking, like you mentioned, is not even in the parks. There's a lot of stuff that we found since. So that's, that's a good tip. What else? As far as uh, deer, I guess uh, 2019 would be uh, be more selective, I guess you say then. Now now that I've seen what Montana can have, especially during the rut, if I have the time, you know, I'd be selective on it, on the whitetail, especially the rut. Um, you know, I, I, this year I waited. I was real selective this year. I got to see some amazing things that I've never seen before uh, within the whitetail, you know, the stuff that you'd see on, you know, real tree TV and stuff like that. So, and it almost paid off. Yeah. You know, so. I totally understand what you're saying. So coming from Michigan, coming from New York, where you might see a buck that you're interested in shooting, and I'm not even saying a big buck. Most of the time a buck I, I was interested in shooting was would be like 100 inches or 110 inches in Michigan because I was like in the middle part of the state, not a lot of trophy quality. The big thing that I realized is I might get one, two, maybe three good opportunities in the season in Michigan. And I was greener then. I've, I mean, I've matured as a hunter or some even since I left Michigan. But out here, you're you're almost inevitably going to get another opportunity at a good buck. Not that not that it's endless or infinite, but if something goes wrong, that wasn't your whole season. You're probably going to have three, four, ten more chances, right? Yep, for sure. Easier to be selective, I guess is what I'm saying. Definitely. And I guess, uh, you know, the other thing too, uh, just hunting in general. If you want to get it done a specific way, you know, obviously, you know, go for it. But um, I think you're just going to increase your uh, your odds if you're really open to being opportunistic with whatever the situation hands you. And being able to read that situation, you know, kind of a deal. Whether it be uh, that bull is really looking for a cow. That's just something that we've been learning, you know, in general, you know, like maybe they're just, they're beagling, they're talking to each other, not really actively seeking. So at that time frame, you know, maybe focusing on water, you know, doing something like a, you know, a wallow set or just even a water hole set or, you know, into that spot and stalk situation. Yeah, that's a good point on, on the elk. So I'm going to make an analogy. I pretty much never used a call in Michigan because everybody was calling all the time. Not to say that they don't work, they can work. But I'd pretty much had abandoned calling. And I feel like for elk out here that our expectation, what you see on the TV, all the calling, the bugling, the cow calls, and what we found, I think, is that we were calling way too much the first year and that we've learned that it's probably better to do, one, no calling if we don't have to, and then, two, to start out with, like, you talk about all the time, least aggressive and then ramp it up. Mm-hmm. Start with one or two cow calls minutes apart, not seconds apart, and, and then go from there. It's, it's easier to speak softly than get aggressive than to get aggressive and then tone it back. Yeah. So I think that's a, a big lesson we've learned is is start out slow. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up for today. If people have any questions or comments about Montana specifically, I think we've learned about the rigs or whatever, throw a comment in there. We would, I'd be happy to answer them to the best of my ability because as we mentioned, it is super confusing yep. learning the rigs, especially 
each species got its own separate rigs, different districts, different, just a lot of stuff. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we're experts, but we know a lot more than we did two years ago now. Definitely willing to help, you know, decipher anything like that. I think, you know, I, I think everybody should um, should get to experience you know, Western hunting, you know, whether it be Montana, Wyoming, you know, Idaho, you know, even Colorado. I think everybody should do it. I think every, it's in everybody's grasp to do it. It's just do it, man. Yep. Make a plan, stick to it, commit to doing it. It's, I mean, sure it costs money, but everything costs money, and yep. it's not so expensive. You can't do it. It's it's in the the reach for most people. You'll you'll never forget that experience. No, absolutely not. So, all right. Well, hey Tim, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm sure we'll have you back again. And uh, I don't know about you, but pretty jacked to get out after these antelope in a couple of weeks. Yeah, just uh, what. Three weeks, I think. Three weeks, yeah. Yeah, so so last year I filmed for Tim, and this year I got the archery tag, and Tim's going to film for me. So yep. hopefully uh, if I don't blow it in, in, a, in a month or two, maybe we'll have some good antelope footage. Hopefully. Yeah, you got it. All right. You well, got it. Well, we'll catch everybody next time. Thanks for checking in.